Good morning, everybody. My name is Jamie, and I get the honor to be the lead pastor here. And on your way in today, if you did not, you can get these on the way out, but you should have seen a little handout that looked like this. Did, did y'all get a few of those? Did some of y'all get those as you came in? That's great, because what you have here is our 2023-2024 annual vision report. And why we label it that is because we want to make sure people know in our church on a daily basis, not just annually, but daily, what's going on in the life of our church. In fact, as you have time, as you are mourning today over the loss of Georgia last night, um, you'll be mourning more after a while too. So, um, sorry, I hope your team gets in the national championship. Y'all aren't laughing at that. I'm sorry, man, y'all are just depressed this morning. I want you to look at this because this will bring you joy. So in the midst of great loss, you can find great joy. Because let me show you something here. In 2022, we had 34 baptisms. This year, we almost had 40. In 2022, we had 46 members join. This year, we had 74 members join. A year ago, in last year's vision report, we were averaging just over 400. This year, we averaged 546 in attendance. Our group number there is a little bit different because of the way it has to be reported, but let me tell you something that's not in there. Our adult Wednesday night groups have more than doubled in a year. And all of that, and if you can, you can kind of look down through there, we've had 60 new donors. People have never given to this church. Why? Because we are a church of hope. We're a place of hope. We're a people of hope. And our mission is to lead the broken to hope in Christ. Amen. And so as you look through this pamphlet today, I want you to notice even the map. When you look at that map that's in there, we are on four continents this year. We were on four continents this year. Two weeks ago, we met with two new pastors who are going to become mission partners with us here at the church. And as you look through the budget, as you consider that, the admin team has uh, agreed to create the position of a mission pastor for 2024. All of that because, not just of your generosity, but because God has led us into this new vision that we're helping others connect, that we're owning our faith, that we're pursuing God daily, and we're extending his hope. That's why hope is so important to us. That's why last week when we preached on hope, it's a centerpiece of who we are. And so I want you to take those things and, and two Sundays, two Sundays, how many Sundays? Two Sundays from now, after this service, we're going to invite um, those members that are down in our life groups to come and join us after, after, say after, after, after the service is over, we're going to come back in here together and we're going to vote to affirm the budget for the next year. We're going to vote to affirm seven new guys that are coming on the deacon team, two of which have never been ordained. So there will be a deacon ordination early January and then two new members that are stepping on hopefully to our admin team, uh, Jessica Ware and Kurt Warner, which I'm excited about those two people. Uh, they are awesome in my book, and they will be awesome in your book if you don't know them yet because they are so, uh, they're smart. They're smart, they're committed, they're faithful, but they love Jesus. And so I want to invite you to take your Bible or your device and go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Once you find it, go ahead and stand. We're just going to dive straight in to this message today. As we talked about last week, we talked about hope but this week, we're going to continue this, this, uh, in this series, and we're going to talk about peace. And so I'm going to start in verse number 14. It says this, For he himself, Christ, is 
our peace. That's the main sentence of these three verses. Everything else is dependent clauses that links to this primary thought that he himself, Christ, is our peace. Who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so that he in himself, he might make two into one new man, thus establishing peace. That's the only present tense participle in this text right here. It's present tense. He is establishing peace. And we experience that right now. And might reconcile them both into one body through God, through the cross, by having it put to, having put to death the enmity. Let's pray. Father, as we dig into this passage today, would you challenge us in our relationships? Would you challenge us first in our relationship with you? Am I right with you, Lord? And then challenges us during this Christmas season to ask, am I right with my brother and my sister, my friends, my neighbor? God, that we would be an extension of the very peace that you gave to us. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So why is it that peace is so important? Last week when we talked about the, the candle of hope, we, we talked about the candle of prophecy, that hope is that which is to come. It's not yet. And that fuels us to two other entities that are in our life, which one of, one of which is peace. Now, peace can have, I think, two primary meanings. Peace can mean this state of tranquility or freedom from disturbance. It's like when you yelled at your kids and said, can I just have a moment of peace? Sit down. I mean, but that's what it is. It's this state of tranquility. But the other uh, aspect of peace involves conflict and tension. A state or period where there's no war, that war has come to an end. But in this reality, is that ideal? In our day and time, do we live in a place where peace is an ideal reality? In other words, can I have peace and still be in the midst of conflict? Well, we see this on a daily basis. We look at the news and the media and all around us of tension and disturbances, fighting, polarization, prejudice, crime, conflict, and tragedy. Well, just this week alone, in the headlines, on a daily basis. Our government is really good about keeping us really, really, really stirred up with political tension. I don't care what side of the aisle you are politically, I get a little bit tired of the drama. Every day. It's every day. And then you look and then there's fear of the economy, the ups and the downs, and there's war in the Middle East and there's ongoing war in in Ukraine. But then to kind of throw me throw a little slant there in the headlines this week, it was discovered that there's a greater chance of colon cancer if you eat bread and drink beer. I love bread. And y'all know I haven't had a bread since last summer. Had me a little nibble last night because it's good. But I guess I'm going to be cancer free. <laughs> there was a child killed. That in and of itself is, is, is tragedy alone, but it was killed because someone thought it was a good idea to make a pet out of a dog and a wolf mixed together. There was a, an earthquake in the Philippines. 
There were riots around the Christmas tree in New York. There was a cow that jumped off a trailer in Michigan and shut down the highway as it galloped back and forth. And Walmart ran out of kibbles and bits. Our little dog is not at peace. But you know what that tells us is that peace is subjective and it's relative, isn't it? I mean, for some of you, peace for you is to go into the mountains and hike on a trail where somebody else would sit there and the crickets cricking would drive them crazy. For some of us, the tranquility of watching the waves crash on a beach brings peace. But some of you are like, I don't want to be around a single soul and this beach is crowded. Peace can be subjective and it can be relative, but but when we look at the word peace and the peace that Scripture teaches us about, in fact, 91 times in the New Testament, peace occurs. It's the Greek word arene. And it, def- it definitely means this, this state of tranquility. But sometimes in a national sense that the nation is at peace or it can be an exemption from rage or havoc or an absence of war. Peace can be between individuals, which means that there's harmony and concord. But where do we find the ideal peace? How can I in my life, when everything seems to be unraveling, have peace? Jesus modeled it, didn't he? Storms were coming and the the, the seas were swelling and Jesus is asleep in the bow of the boat. You know why? Because just like the Bible says that God is love, Jesus is peace. In fact, when you see this passage, it's in the emphatic He himself is our peace. So I can stand in the funeral home with a loved one and experience sadness, but at the same time have peace. Right now we're sitting in this room and the heat is on, and I know the heat's on, I'm sweating. The heat is on, and we're sitting here comfortably in chairs while we have brothers and sisters in the Middle East who are worried about a bomb going off over their head. In fact, we got brothers and sisters all around this world that right now are in underground churches for the fear of their life because they've said they believed in Jesus and that belief is so important they're willing to die for it. But they have peace because Jesus is that peace. We celebrate this candle today. This is actually called the candle of Bethlehem because it was on that Christmas night that a child was born to us. A son was given to us and the government is resting on his shoulders. And his name is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. That Jesus was born to establish a kingdom on the throne of David and uphold it with justice and righteousness. Because Jesus came into a world that was riddled with sin, conflict, Intention. He became flesh because it's in our flesh we sin. And he went to the cross and he put that flesh to death. Jesus rose back from the grave, didn't he? And that mortal body became an immortal body, didn't it? The same promise that he has for you and for me if we've trusted Christ. This fleshly body may die someday before Jesus comes back. But if it does, he's promised that if I've put my faith and trust in him, he'll raise me back from the dead.
And I can experience that peace right now if I know Jesus Christ is my Savior. Isaiah 26 verse 3 says, The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts you. My challenge to you today is this, that we need to recognize the peace that Christ perfects. We need to recognize the the peace that Christ perfects, and that's what this passage is telling us. The book of Ephesians is written concerning unity in the church. In fact, I kind of believe that in the book, because back then there wasn't a church like this, they, they met in homes and they interacted, but they didn't live on farms three or four acres apart. They lived in places where they were constantly around other people. And so you see instructions in there about the relationship in the home. And I believe that was important because there wasn't peace in the home. And if there's not peace in the home, how can there be peace in the church? In fact, it's beautiful if you, if you skip on back into, into Ephesians where you see, I think, a double metaphor. Where Jesus is, or Paul is writing about Jesus in the church and how that's how a married couple should look, man and wife. And as man and wife look, that's the way the church and Jesus looks. And it kind of goes back and forth to get this fullness of how we understand the relationship between Jesus and us. And so he's writing about the unity of the church. And he starts off by talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in chapter 1. And that how we're blessed with every spiritual blessing, blessing in the heavenly places. But then we get to chapter 2. And you and I, we're dead in our trespasses. What do dead things do? Nothing, because they're dead. We don't have the ability to save ourselves. We're dead. We need, we need the Spirit of God to bring life back into our bodies. And when this happens by grace through faith, right? That's why and how we're saved is by the grace of God. And then in verse 10, he says that you are the poem, the masterpiece, the artwork of God destined for good works in Christ Jesus. Now, we could stop there and be like, man, that's great. But then, verse 11, he says, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by hand. You see, there was this tension at that time between two people groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. Gentiles in the Greek means ethnos, which means ethnic group. Everyone that's not a Jew is a Gentile. Two groups, right? But they actually put labels on that, referring back to Genesis 17, when God speaks to Abram, I'm going to make a great nation of you. I'm going to give you this land. So what I'm asking you to do is this. I want you to mark every male member of your household and your people by circumcision. Now, don't get uncomfortable, parents. I'm not going to go into details about what circumcision is or was. But I'm going to tell you, you need to have that conversation with your kid because it happens in almost every book of the Bible in the New Testament. Because it was an issue. And as we talked about last week, it was an issue because the Jews were saying the Gentiles weren't complete unless they were circumcised. And so they were labeled by a work of the flesh. Well, getting circumcised didn't produce faith. The covenant that Abraham was, that God made with Abraham was that he said, listen, trust my promise, credited to you as righteousness, but the act of circumcision did not save Abraham. 
It was God. He put faith in God. God saved him. But see, the nation of Israel was supposed to be a blesser of the nations. In fact, in Deuteronomy 10, they were supposed to take the alien in and love on them and take care of them. By the time of Jesus, there were so many ordinances that what we'll hear in a little bit is a quote from from the Jewish historian Josephus where they had put these things in the temple saying, Gentiles, if you come into here, don't blame us if you die. That's how tense it was between the Jews and everyone else. And here's Paul saying, I've been called to you Gentiles to preach Jesus to you, and you're now coming in to the fold. And so that brings us up to where we are in this text, in in verse 14. Again, the primary sentence here, the primary verb is the word is. For he himself is our peace. How did that come about? Well, after that, there are three participles, three dependent clauses of things that Jesus did to make this peace. But it wasn't just the peace that we exist, that that we get to partake of between us and God. It was peace between the Gentile and the Jew. Between the person across the street that I really don't want anything to do with. The person that I look at their color or their state of life and I go ahead and make a judgment, there's no way I can be a brother or sister with that person. Come on, people, y'all know what I'm talking about. So he has these three verbs that link back to how, and then he does something else. He has what's called subjunctive, which is the case of what if, which reveals to us two purposes of why he did this. But at the end of it, it was to remove the hatred, the block, the wall that existed between these two groups. Why? Because in Christ, we are one. We are one. And what ought to break our heart is during Christmas season is the thought of any one person being by themselves. And especially if they're by themselves because of conflict and tension. In fact, one study uh, released a year ago said this, 73% of Generation Z state that they feel alone either sometimes or always. That ought to be a disturbing statistic to us. But you know what's the reality? There's a reason why they're feeling alone. There's a reason why we feel alone. It's called isolation. Three reasons why Generation Z is isolated. Number one, overstimulation. They can't take any more input, so they lock down. Social media, which this this is ironic to me. In the day and time where we have Be Real and Instagram and Snapchat and all the means to stay connected, no one's connected. So let me just invite, if you're watching me online and you haven't stepped foot back in a church in three years, you need to. Because you cannot do authentic relationships through a screen. Now you're looking at me going, wait a minute, I know, I know, I get it. It may be a connecting point, but at the end of the day, if all that you have, the only relationship you have with someone else is through a text or a Facebook post, you don't have authentic relationship. Because you can pretend to be somebody you're not. So you have this overstimulation that causes isolation, social media. And the third one is a shift in dependence. In dependence. I don't need anybody. I think that's the curse of the American blessing. Because America is so blessed that we can live in these homes 
And we can put up these walls between our properties and I don't have to have a thing to do with anyone else. I remember this chicken farmer years ago from a previous church that the only interaction he had socially was with the vet from the, from the plant and the chickens in his house. And they didn't talk back. Y'all, that's going to sit in in just a minute. Listen, right now in my car, I have an inflatable Max from the Grinch. When I turn my car on, he blows up and sits in my passenger seat. You won't believe the conversations I've had, and I've actually invited somebody to church because of Max. I looked at him the other day, and I started talking to him. I just put my hands behind my head and said, Max, I don't know ever why I leave my pilot. I mean, it's like, I mean, we're, we're, but we're, but we, but really, we won't go to Walmart because we're afraid we're going to run into somebody and take five minutes of our time. We isolate ourselves, but yet when we go, well, why don't I have peace in my life? So I want to take the next few moments and I want to, I want to give you six points. Don't worry, that doesn't mean I'm going to go double. It's just these are good six points. So the first one says this, when we look at this passage, true peace begins with Christ. That peace doesn't begin with me. It doesn't begin with an idea. It doesn't begin with a treaty. It begins with Christ. It begins with Christ coming into this, into this world, that prince of peace who brought a reine. R.P. Martin says this, to say that he is our peace sets forth the truth more emphatically than to say that he's made peace or that he proclaims peace. Both of those are in this book. It is him as fellow members of his body that his people enjoyed their twofold peace. It is he who brought the formerly hostile group into a new unity in which the old distinction between Jew and Gentile has now been transcended. In other words, back then before Christ, it was Jew and Gentile. Now there's a new distinction. There is saved and there's lost. But just like the Jews had been commanded to be good to the alien, we've been called, church, we've been called to extend the hope of Christ to a world that does not know the peace of God. As Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace. I can't have the peace of God in my life right now at this moment without knowing Christ. So I just want a straightforward question. I have a straightforward question to ask you today. Where are you with the Lord? Are you right with the Lord? Do you have the confidence that if you bow your head right now and utter a prayer that God's listening to you? Or is there something gnawing in your soul and your spirit going, I just don't, I don't, I feel distant I don't feel like God's hearing me. Well, guys, you can take care of that today. You can repent and turn to Christ. If you've never been saved, Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sin, the very thing that separates us from the Lord. And Jesus brought us to himself by dying on that cross, taking and getting rid of the sin that separated us. And he came back to life So he can impart life to you and to me that would trust him. We know he can do that because he himself came back from the dead. Are you right with the Lord? Because if we're right with the Lord, second point, 
True peace seeks unity. So I told you that there were some, some uh, dependent clauses here, so let's dig into this. In verse number 14, he says, for he himself is our peace. Now, here's how he did that. He made both groups into one. In other words, in, in here, it's like he took a pair and brought it together. Algebraically speaking, it's incorrect to say two equals one. So for those of you that remember algebra class, you do remember algebra class, right? See, I was that teacher that when you solved the equation, I made you plug it back in to check your answer. So if you plugged it back in and you did all the work and you got down and it said five equals two, what that told you is what you found for X was wrong. It's algebraically incorrect. And so this is algebraically incorrect to say two equals one. But, but God's done it before in Genesis 2 when he said that a man would leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife and the two would become one flesh. And so now he's doing this again, and he's doing this by his work, his creative power to take two and make it into one. And so church, we have to embrace this idea that Jew, Gentile, black, white, American, non-American, Democrat, Republican, Southern or Northern, we are all one in Christ. And whatever I allow to separate me from someone else that is a believer in Christ is the very hatred that Jesus died for. When I let myself be separated from other people by these labels, I'm living a hate-filled life. Francis Schaeffer, in response to John 17, 20 through 21, which says that, Jesus is praying that they may be one. Just as you, Father, and I are one, you and me and I and you, that they may be in us so that the world, check this out, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The unity of the body of Christ is so vital that evangelism hinges upon it. You can't go up to somebody and say, God sent Jesus to the world if you are disconnected from the body of Christ. It has no strength. Why? Because in the gospel, we see that Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are one. And if we want to go and tell the world that they can know a God who is one, but we're not one, it doesn't give the gospel any, any focus, any strength, any platform, any foundation. So Francis Schaeffer says, we cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son they can't believe that Jesus' claims are true and that Christianity is true unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. And so my question to you today in reflection of that is what, what if on your Christmas list this year it was to give peace one more try? If some of you in this room, you have been so hurt by other people and I can't imagine the depth of the hurt that you carry in your heart. And for somebody like me to stand up and say, hey, you, you need to make peace with that brother, sister, neighbor, whoever it may be. You're going, yeah, you don't know what I've been through. I, I don't. And I don't want to diminish the pain that, you, that you've experienced. But Jesus Christ on a cross looked down at the very ones who put nails and feet in his hands and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What if this Christmas, one more try, to make peace with somebody that you're not in peace with. Why? Because true peace 
Point three, does it know walls? Look at the second and the third participles. After he said he made both groups into one, at the end of 14 he says, and he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. The dividing wall would be a tall structure. I mean, a wall that you can't get in. We have walls all around us. Why do we build walls? What's the one reason why we build a wall? To protect ourselves, to keep others out. And this barrier actually, is, it's, like, it's like a hedge of protection, which Georgia wished it had yesterday from Sanford Stadium. But they didn't. But it's, I want you to get that image in your head. That hedge is around Sanford Stadium. Why? This is where football happens. This is where the fans are, right? Dividing two groups. But what the Bible says here is that he broke that wall down. He broke that barrier so that the two groups could be made into one. The other one here is it says that he abolished in his flesh the hatred, the enmity, which was produced by following the law. The law was never intended to make the flesh righteous. The law was given to show the sinfulness of the flesh. So when you and I buy into the lie of Satan that we can do a lot of good stuff to make ourselves right with the Lord, we're believing a satanic deception. God doesn't want you to clean up your life and then come to him. You can't. You come to him and he cleans you up. And if there's not peace in my life, it may be because I've come to the Lord and I'm still walking in the very sin that he died to set me free from. That may be why I don't experience peace in my life. That's why repentance is important. And it may be why I have tension between me and someone else. I remember years ago, there was a football player around the time that some of the riots were happening. And this football player, African-American football player, this, this reporter was gonna get it. She wanted, she wanted him to come out and say, the reason for the tension in America is absolutely racism. That's what she was trying to fish for. But in the interview with this football player, this NFL player, She asks him the question. He said, oh, I've got the answer. It's sin. Plain and simple. You go back to the curse and you see what the curse did. I will increase your childbearing. You'll go to the the land, Adam, and you'll, you'll bear thistles and thorns. And in the very next chapter, their sons are killing each other. Satan has had it all along to divide people through by the wall. And if we want peace, we've got to, as Ronald Reagan said in 1987, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The Berlin Wall that had been erected in 1961 in among a people group, the Germans. Here's this wall built. You got Germans on one side and Germans on the other side, and they're separated by a political ideology. But as Eastern Eastern Europe began to see communism subside, There was the call, and in 1989, during the peaceful revolution, that wall came down. In fact, it's a little bit personal to me, because my dad, being a Vietnam vet, was stationed in Germany for a year, and he was stationed on that wall. And his, his, his orders were, shoot, all because of a political ideology. All because a dividing wall, a hedge that was keeping two people separated. I asked, I texted my mom last night and I said, hey, ask dad how he felt about, I don't don't remember, I didn't ask my dad in 1989, I was seventh grade maybe. 
I don't remember asking him about the Berlin Wall. She wrote back and she said this. She said, he said, I hope those people are okay. You're standing on the dividing wall and you're seeing these people separated. It's no different in the 1860s when our country was divided by a war and brothers fighting against brothers. And we look at those things and we go, that's nonsense. But you know what? We do it in the church all the time. We shoot our wounded. We hurt the hurting. Sometimes all so that I can be right. We'd rather be right in our theology than right with one another. Do we need to be right in our theology? Yes or no? Absolutely need to be right in our theology. Do I need to go take someone and rub their face in the ground, shoot and kill them? No. I need to be at peace. And so that call there, true peace knows no wall, as Josephus wrote, he said, whoever is caught inside these walls only has himself to blame for his subsequent death. How would you like to see that? Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. He said, I came not to abolish, but to fulfill. The law was fulfilled. It was no longer a weapon of the Jews. That wall had been torn down because walls are for enemies. But if we really want to embrace the ideas that Jesus had and the love that he had, then we got to embrace this. True peace doesn't know enemies. True peace knows no enemy. When you look back at 2.15, he abolished, he abolished the enmity. And by doing that, then we get this present tense establishment of peace. Two groups into one. The wall has been pulled down. Hatred has been removed. And in that state, I can live in peace with my brother and my sister in Christ. Jesus said, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Twice in this passage is the word enmity or hostility. But by being made one, by breaking down the wall and abolishing that enmity, he didn't do away with the law. He brought the two groups and made them one group. The thing that divided them was removed. And any emotional stigma that was existing between the groups should have been removed. Why? The ugliness of the cross. When you think about how ugly the cross is, you can see how ugly the hatred is sometimes that exists between us and someone else. Jesus died to that. And he gives that to us. He, he extends that peace to us. In fact, in Romans 12, 18, Paul teaches this. Is if, if that possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. That is sandwiched between don't return evil to anyone and don't take revenge. That comes after the main verse or the main sentence which says, bless those who persecute you. Seems to me that if there's enmity in my life, the enmity I'm claiming to experience, it's because it's the enmity that I'm expressing. If I don't want to be hated, then I shouldn't hate. But we look for a good fight, don't we? Come on, guys, that was a good game last night. Didn't come out the way most of you wanted it, but it was a good game last night. We like a good fight. 
I don't know. In fact, I think we're, we're a little bit too infatuated with fights. We watch courtroom dramas. Or some of you grew up watching WCW wrestling. That's fake fighting, guys. But it's still, decades later, so popular. But if you've ever watched one minute of it, the visceral ugliness that comes out. The solution is when I seek peace, I seek the peacemaker, Jesus Christ. And how did he make peace? He laid down his life for his enemies. When I seek to be a peacemaker, I evidence the love and the power of God in my own life. So let me give you these two points and do the, do, do the last two verses here. The fifth point shares this. It says, true peace seeks to be one. That was one of the purposes that he had in doing what he did. He says that he, so he might make the two into one new man. There, the word two is dua, which is a number, not pair like it was in 14, into one new man, establishing peace. And then he says this, and might reconcile them both into one body. So in the first sense here, he made two into one. That was one of the purposes of doing this, making peace. And the other two is that he might reconcile them. And here's the thing about reconciliation. This word here is reconcile in the sense of lateral. It's being made right with somebody else. But when you go to 2 Corinthians 5 and it says we're ambassadors of reconciliation, that's a, it's a different word. Same root word, but a different prepos, uh, prefix. It means to be right this way. I know that's cliche. If I get things right this way, I get things right this way, but it's true. I can't make peace with others until I have peace made between me and the Lord. But if I'm living as a Christian and I'm claiming to know the peace that has been made between God and me, but I don't live to extend that peace out in my life, then I've really missed something. Last point there is true peace seeks reconciliation. One author said this, he said, Christ's second purpose in destroying the, the hostility was to reconcile both into one body. And he did this through the cross by which Christ killed, he put to death the hatred between people and God. Though he was put to death, he in turn put to death the Jewish and the Gentile hostility. Many of us in this room today, you have broken relationships and it breaks my heart. It hurts you to this day, some of the relationships and the way those relationships were broken. But here's a question. Regardless of blame, who's responsible for reconciliation? Because here's the thing. If you choose to play the blame game, and it's a fun game. The blame game is a fun game. You could play the blame game all day long, and you could point fingers this way and that way. If I can get political for a moment without offending anybody, I get sick and tired of politicians saying, well, it was the previous guy's fault. I don't care. It's your responsibility. And see, we live that in our flesh. We'll point fingers at everybody else, but forget it's my responsibility. And that's the call of God to us today in reconciliation. It, it begins with Christ. He, it seeks unity. It doesn't know walls. It doesn't know enemies. It seeks to be one. It seeks reconciliation. Why? It, because us today, we need to recognize this peace that Christ Perfects. As you go on down in this chapter, in verse 17, he says, And he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Well, that's out of Isaiah. I'm pretty convinced Paul loved the book of Isaiah. 
But he says this in Isaiah. He said, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and I struck him. This is God speaking. I hid my face and I was angry. And he went on turning away in the, heart of, in the way of his heart. In other words, he's talking about here, I, I chastised him and he kept running away. Verse 18, he says, I have seen his ways. I know his sin, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore him and comfort him and to his mourners. Then verse 19, he says, creating the praise of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far and to him is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. The operative thing in this verse, the operative idea is that he said, I will heal him. So as I told you, Max sits in my passenger seat of my car. But I don't know any other movie or movies, because there's three of them of the Grinch, that really illustrates what it's like to live in a life of hostility, hatred, and tension. I mean, look at that picture. The Grinch isn't even a who, if you know the story. He lived near the who's in, the who, in Whoville. He lived up on a mountain that was shaped with a crook at the top, and he just hated the who's. And they give reasons why he hated the who. Maybe his heart was too small. In one movie, we see that he was picked on when he was a kid. But he definitely wasn't a who. He's more like a cat-like humanoid. It's very hairy. But in his hatred, he decided to go after the very thing that brought them joy, which was Christmas. And so he devised this plan to to become a faux Santa. And he rides into Whoville, and in the cartoon version, he, he arrives at Cindy Lou Who's home. And as he begins to dismantle their house, the hatred of this Grinch, he, tap, he, he, he gets caught, he sends her back to bed, and he takes her Christmas tree, disheveled and damaged by this point. In fact, if you notice, this tree looks like the mountain he lives on. Because that's where the Grinch lived. He lived in a lack of peace. That's what he wanted to own. That's where he lived. And so here's the truth. It's like, I can decorate things and make it beautiful and say, oh, it is the season to be jolly. But inside, this is what the Christmas tree of my heart looks like. There's a lack of peace. There's a lack of love. There's a lack of intention. Now, in that story, he ends up reconciling, does he not? He ends up making things right. He brings Christmas back. But today, on this, on this, this day where we're celebrating peace, my challenge to you is this. What do I need to do this Christmas season to find peace? The first one is, do I need to make peace with the Lord? If you've... If you've wandered away from the Lord, the Lord is waiting for you to repent and turn back to Him. Maybe there is that family member in your life and you would say, you know what, I want to make peace with my brother, my sister, my mom, my dad, my neighbor, my coworker, whoever it may be, I want to make peace. That's going to take forgiveness. It's going to take a dying to your pride, but is it necessary? I think so. Because again, I can experience the peace of God in here and everything around me be disheveled. But today, 
If you're here today, we're going to stand. Go ahead and stand with me if you don't mind. As we sing today, like I said, I don't want to diminish the pain you've experienced in relationships. Because some of you, it's not just that it hurt, it is hurting. We've got pastors and prayer partners that, that are willing to come and pray with you. If you want to come down to this altar and say, you know what, Lord, I just need you to heal me. He said, peace, peace. Peace, peace. I'll bring him back. I will, I will restore that man and I will heal him. Maybe today you just need to ask the Lord, Lord, would you heal the heart, hurt of my heart? So move as God would lay on you today, hoping that God will put in your heart what it is that he wants you to do this Christmas season. And this altar is open for you. Father, as we, as we kneel before you, speak to us now. Show us, Lord, what you want us to do in Jesus' name. Amen.